The guy was excited. He's not going to have to spend thousands of dollars. He's going to get the dents out himself. So he goes home, and he's parking in the driveway, and he's blowing, and he's blowing on the tailpipe of this truck of his, and nothing is happening. And finally, his dad is after working over in the evening, and he pulls up into the driveway, and he looks at his son and says, son, what are you doing? He says, dad, dad, I am trying to blow the dents out of the truck here. The body shop guy told me this is exactly what I can do and I'd save a lot of money. And he says, really? So how's it going? He says, dad, I'm blowing as hard as I can. And the dad just starts laughing. And he says, you're trying to blow the dents out of your truck? Don't you know that you got to roll the windows up first? How many of you have ever seen those Hollywood movies, okay? And this brand new Camaro, maybe one borrowed from the Transformers, you remember that one? And it's, it's, it's going down the New York City, of all places, traffic, and it's in a car chase. <laughs> I mean, can you even have a car chase in downtown New York? It's just bumper to bumper, right? So, you know, they go on the sidewalk, and they're just banging one another bumping bumpers, and they're, the guy is trying to escape in this brand new Camaro. And as the Camaro passes the camera, there are absolutely no dents on the Camaro. <laughs> and you're thinking, this is not real. No way. That's Hollywood for you. Reality is, you would not drive your brand new Camaro in a car chase. Am I right? So let me set the record straight here. Let me transition. The Bible says that those of you who trust in Christ and have given yourselves irretrievably, irretrievably to Jesus, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You see, you have traded in your 1975 4x4 Chevy truck with all of the dirt and dents for a brand new 1918 Chevy Camaro SS Hennessy with 1,008 brake horsepower, accelerates from 0 to 60 in exactly 2.7 seconds, and tops out at over 220 miles an hour, you are not going to be having a car chase in downtown New York City. As a matter of fact, you are not going to go four-wheeling back in the swamp, banging up against trees in your new 2018 Chevy Camaro SS Hennessy. You got me. No. You see... That kind of stuff, that, that's what Hollywood does. You don't get dirt and dents all over your brand new paint job. But you see, this is exactly what we do when we have become new creations in Christ and we make the, ch the choice to begin living like we did before we came to Christ. What? are you doing? Romans 8, verses 1 through 18. It speaks of the very fact that we are new creations in Christ, and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to take a look at this concept of being a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. 
As much as maybe you love that 75 Chevy truck, it was a piece of garbage and broke down on you like all of the time, dense dirt and everything else with the bumpers half hanging on. And you have been given a brand new 2018 Chevy Camaro. It's yours to own. We are new creations in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. The new has come. Church, it says here in verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. Church, I want you to underline that phrase. Highlight it. Underline it maybe even a couple of times. Box it in. Do whatever you can. When you're reading through this, I want you to see that jump out. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? What are you doing four-wheeling in a 2018 Chevy Camaro? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life, new creations in Christ church. Verse 5. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know, and I want you to highlight and underline several times that phrase, we know that our old self or literally old man, old woman, the old Jew was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, we should Excuse me, we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. You see, just like you died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now, in the same way, count yourselves and highlight, underline several times that phrase as well, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves. Highlight that phrase. Underline it several times. Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Now, we, we focused on this verse 14 the last two weeks. For sin shall not be your master, because you were not under law, but under grace. And I trust you've underlined under grace and highlighted that with whatever color you want several times. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin 
and have become slaves to righteousness. Have you ever heard the expression, become a better version of yourself? Become a better version of yourself. Now, I, I, I want to try really hard and kind of understand what they're getting at here. Okay, the, the idea is uh, maybe even if a Christian says this, God can help you become more like Christ, but retain your personality and therefore become a better version of yourself. Usually, though, this phrase, become a better version of yourself, tends to talk about human effort and what we can do and rah-rah humanity and leave God out of the picture. The Scripture says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So let's try as hard as we can. Okay, maybe I understand, become a better version of myself, but you will never, ever, ever, ever want to tell someone who is lost in their sin and without Christ and hope in this world, Christ can help you become a better version of yourself. You know what? Before I came to Christ, I'm so glad nobody ever said to me, you know what? Mike Curtis 1.0 is now going to become Mike Curtis 2.0. You're going to become a better version of yourself. But here is the reality. That program, Mike Curtis 1.0, crashed. It died. You see, the old man, the old Mike Curtis was obliterated. I was crucified with Christ, the Bible says. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And so we need to realize that before you came to Christ, that old you, it doesn't live anymore. It truly does not exist anymore. That is not on your radar. You are turned, if you will, in another direction and you are pursuing Christ because you died to who that old you was and you are now embracing life in Christ and you have died to sin. Again, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see, according to God's truth, Christ loved me, he was crucified for me, and therefore I believe and I surrender to him. And because of this, Mike Curtis 1.0 died. There is no Mike Curtis 2.0. There's no such thing. That old version, it's gone forever, never to be even renewed. You're not a better version of yourself. You're a totally different person. You see, this is the idea of a new creation. Now, if you walk through a cemetery, you're going to see gravestones, and on the top of many of them, the, the letters R-I-P, RIP. Actually, it stands for rest in peace. Now, if you were to visit my father's gravesite, you would see on that gravestone, October 9th, 1926, with a dash, and then November 30th, 2016. He lived for 90 years, and then God called him home. 
on my stone and on your stone and actually on my dad's stone as well, there is only one date. For me, June 1976. That is both when I died and when I was born. Now, I realize I'm kind of playing with words here a little bit. I, I'm, I'm wanting you to see that for me to be born of God, I had to die. I, I no longer live. That is Paul's point in Galatians 2 here. And now here in chapter 6 of Romans, your old man, your old you, was crucified with Christ. Crucified with Christ. You see, you had to die. You had to die. That old you that was enslaved to sin, he no longer exists. Spirit of God came in you, transformed you, truly transformed you. You are not just another, a, a better version of yourself. You are totally different. You have access to the throne of grace. You remember when Jesus died on the cross, what happened to the veil? Torn, ripped from top to bottom. So in your mind, if you will, and maybe this will help us grasp this, that phrase, R-I-P, rest in peace, for illustrative reasons, I want you to think of it also as rip. Because when we died, the veil was ripped, and now I have access into the presence of God. I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Every day, you can approach the throne of grace. That is not just a nice little religious cliche, approach the throne of grace. You are there in the very presence of God because the truth is you died and now you are alive in Christ Jesus. Now, there are certain truths that are sometimes difficult for us to grasp, and this is one of them. Mike Curtis died, but Mike Curtis now, even though he is dead to sin, can sometimes sin. How is this? If I am dead to sin, how and, and why do I sin? You see, I am now a slave. You are a slave to Christ. You used to be a slave to sin, but you have been bought just like God redeemed Israel for <clears throat> out of Egypt. That is the very same picture that he gives to you saying you have been bought with Christ's blood and you now are no longer a slave to sin, but you belong to God. And even in this passage, it says we are now slaves to God, slaves to righteousness. We're going to need to unwrap that a little bit later on. But you used to be a slave to sin. You are no longer. It no longer has mastery over you. I want you to see this right here. It says in verse 6, for we know. We know. This is the truth. Paul invites you to apprehend this truth. Your old man died. Do you get this? This is a truth. Your old man died. But then the question is, in my reality, though, it seems that I continue to sin. Now, not as much, but I don't even want to sin at all. 
Help me understand this, Paul. I know that my old man and my old ways are crucified, but sometimes it seems as if they, I don't know, come back to life. How is that? Why is that? I believe Paul here in this chapter gives us an aid to be able to walk in that truth. And I'm going to make a distinction between your reality and the truth of God's word of who you are in Christ. Who I am in Christ is I am a saint. I am not a sinner. A saint is a holy one. That's what the word saint, hagios in the Greek, literally is holy one. We translate it saint. That is who you are in Christ. You are not a sinner because the old nature is done away with and you have received a new nature. And that new nature is one that is set free from sin. Set free from sin. You are now slaves of God. The old you is crucified. Know this truth. Many times, I think we can become very frustrated. And I, I just want to give, I'm actually going to be giving us a couple of illustrations this morning. I've used this one before, but you see, when we've been set free from, from sin, it is as if we had been in the prison cell with our arms and feet chained to the wall, prison guards around us, keeping an eye on us, and Christ has come into your prison cell, and he has broken those chains, and he tells you, you are free. And we go out of the prison cell, the door is unlocked, this is awesome, and yet for some reason, we can find ourselves back in that cell, still sitting down, thinking, I am still a prisoner. I'd like to ask you, are you a prisoner? There is no chains on your hand, and you are acting as if you are a prisoner, but the truth is, you are not. And so, as we now turn in chapter 6 to verse 11, Paul gives us a second step, if you will. The first one is, know this truth. We got to start there. Know this truth. The second one is, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Now, this word count, it literally is a logistical accounting term in the Greek. It's the Greek word logizomai. We actually get the word logistical from it. It means to calculate, if you will, in our vernacular, do the math. Or put on someone's account. Now, we see that in Romans 4.3. If you were to turn there, we've spoken about this when I talked about Christ's imputed righteousness and we see it in chapter 4 verse 3 where it says does the scriptures doesn't the what does scripture say there we go abraham believed god and it was credited to him as righteousness in other words on abraham's life in his reality if you will he believed god and on god's ledger he put down righteousness and so he took his righteousness and placed it, Christ's righteousness, and placed it on Abraham's account for his faith. And so we word 
it's, it's worded here, credited to him as righteousness. This happens through faith. So how do we do, how do we do, how do we do this? Which, sorry, I had to read that a couple of times. How do we do this, what I'm talking about, with this truth? Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to Christ. So let me give you another illustration, an accounting illustration. How many of you know what a checkbook with a checkbook register is? Seriously, raise your hand. I'm serious, raise your hand. Because there are going to be some of the younger people who don't know what this is. They've heard about it. They've never seen one. By the way, here's, here's what it looks like, okay? And it actually has a, a register. That means I can write checks out. You see, I, I'm, I'm saying this because now for most people, they go online. They don't have to worry about checks. They go online. So how much do you have in your account? Well, I still, I have to look at my checkbook register, okay? Okay, this is how much I have, all right? All you got to do is you have this fancy app on your phone, and you press the button, and you punch in your password or whatever you need to do, and voila, there it is in seconds. You know exactly how much you have. Well, let me introduce you to this concept of reconciling your checkbook. Reconciling your checkbook, because some of you who have written checks, I'm not talking about electronic checks, but written checks, they're still out there, and so you can't count them. So the bank sends you at the end of the month this bank statement. It shows you how much you have. And as you look on this, you think, wow, really? And now you have to reconcile your checkbook with what the bank just told you. Now, I would, when I was a young guy, and I saw that there was a discrepancy between what my checkbook said and what the bank statement said, I had this really proud idea. I'm going to show the bank that they're wrong. They say that I'm $100 short here, and I just don't believe that. I'm going to prove that they're wrong. So I got the bank number out, and I was ready to call them, and I said, yeah, I'm just going to go through this one more time. And time after time after time, I realized, nope, it was me. I made the error, not the bank, and here's what I've discovered. Now, you might, this might be wrong for you, but I've, I've never found the bank statement to be wrong. <laughs> never. And so whenever I see that there's a problem, I go through my checkbook, you know, doing what I need to do with deposits, subtractions, and checks that are outstanding and not cash, and reconcile my checkbook, come up with this figure. And if that figure does not man match what the bank says, I go back and I figure out what did I do wrong? Because this is my reality. I base my life on this. But the bank says otherwise. So let's say one day, as I am balancing my checkbook, I noticed something. I got a check for $150, and I deposited it, except in my checkbook register, and this is not an argument for not using checkbook registers, by the way, but in my checkbook register, I put it in the payment column instead of the deposit column, and so when I went over, I subtracted $150 instead of adding $150. You know what that did for, for my account? For what I thought I had in my bank, let's say I had a let's say I had five hundred dollars, and instead of adding one hundred and fifty dollars, which would give me how much church, six hundred fifty. Thank you. I subtracted it, and now how much do I have? At least I think I have three hundred and fifty dollars. So instead of six hundred fifty, I have three hundred and fifty, which is the difference of 
$300, thank you very much. And consequently, when I look at that $350, well, that's barely enough to pay for the rest of my rent. And now someone is in need. I'm sorry, but I can't give to you because my checkbook register says I have only $350, and I need that for this, and I cannot give. Let's say my daughter needs to go to the dentist. I'm sorry, we're going to have to wait because we just don't have enough money. The car is having difficulty and is breaking down. I'm sorry, I can't re get the car repaired because I don't have enough money. And my life decisions are based according to that inaccurate checkbook. You see, that checkbook is your reality. That checkbook is, I keep sinning. But the truth is, God's ledger says... You have died to sin. You're no longer its slave. I need you to reconcile your checkbook. Just do the math, Mike, and reconcile the checkbook. This is your reality, but truly, this is who you are in Christ, God's ledger, the bank statement. Align your reality with that truth. This is what Paul is saying. Count yourselves, reckon yourselves, consider yourselves, do the math. You have died to sin, but you are now alive in God. Live that way. That is who you are. You are not that way anymore. That's the old you, Mike. That is not who I have created you to be. Reconcile your life. Live according to the truth that you are in Christ. And it actually says that, by the way, in verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is one of those truths of in Christ Jesus that we need to grapple with. You see, according to the word of God in Christ Jesus, apparently I am a new creation. I don't always feel that way, and unfortunately I don't always live that way. But in Christ, the truth, God's ledger, I am a new creation. I am a saint. Now granted, the saints sometimes sin, but this is who I am. I am a saint. You are a holy one. In Christ, my old man is dead my flesh, too, has been crucified. In Christ, I actually reign in life. I don't always feel that way, but that is the truth. In Christ, I reign in life. In Christ, I have a glorious inheritance. The problem is, sometimes I start living in the desert, and I fail to inherit and enjoy the complete inheritance of the promised land that God has given me. And I need to align my reality with God's word, his truth. I've used this illustration before, but I personally find it helpful. When I was a young guy, when I didn't have aches and pains or arthritis or tendonitis or anything like that, I used to wrestle. And the unique thing about wrestling is you have to truly understand when you're in the wrestling season, you are a wrestler. I have to admit, outside of the wrestling season, I didn't always run or exercise or do the weights or, you know, eat right. And I loved my chips and I loved pretty bad food. And I loved going to, the, to, to Burger King and getting the Whopper with large order of fries and extra salt and, you know, the large Coke and whole nine yards. I loved that. But wrestling season, God forbid, I should ever darken the door of a Burger King, okay? 
He just didn't do that. When I was a wrestler, when anyone wrestled, if you're serious, and you even would consider calling yourself a wrestler, all right, you, you, you thought like a wrestler, you, you talked like a wrestler, you read wrestling magazines, you watched wrestling on TV, you ate like a wrestler, you lived like a wrestler, because you were a wrestler whether you were on the mat or off the mat. My friends, you're a Christian. God has given you a brand new 2018 Chevy Camaro SS Hennessy. How, why would you think about four-wheeling in that thing? We do that, don't we? I guess we go brain dead sometimes. You're a new creation in Christ. Do the math. You've died. That old you, that old you does not exist anymore. This is much more than just a positive mental attitude. See, a positive mental attitude is faith in myself. I can do it. I know I can do it. You see, this is totally different. This is saying, God, you said it. I'm going to choose to believe it. And by faith, I will apprehend and live under your grace by which I am a saint. The old me has been crucified, and I have become a new creation. I am a new man, a new woman in Christ. That is not me. This right here is me in Christ. And so faith, not in me, that's the positive mental attitude and what psychology has to offer, which always fails, but God's word, God's truth, that is who I am, so that is who I choose to believe because God said it, I believe it, and that is how I will live my life. Now, Paul says, you know what, you need to go one step further with this. And so, I encourage you to highlight, we know, in verse 6, I encourage you to highlight, count yourselves, in verse 11. There's one other phrase I encouraged you to highlight, and that is found in verse 13, offer yourselves. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Offer to him yourself, the members, the parts of your body, to him as instruments of righteousness. Now, this word offer is sometimes translated present as you would present an offering or as you would present yourself in the Old Testament as consecrated to God. Males three times a year had to go to Jerusalem and present themselves to the Lord. That is consecrated and devoted to him. Now, we actually see this word coming up again in the book of Romans in chapter 12. So, go there with me. Chapter 12, verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 1 says this, therefore, I urge you, in view of God's mercies, offer yourself, your bodies or present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing or acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And this word worship is not the typical word for worship, proskuneo. This is the Greek word latruo, which basically means we 
We live a holy life before him every single day, every moment. My life is offered up to him as a sacrifice. That is, that's to serve God or to worship him, my body presented to him. You're a living sacrifice. The real sacrifice has died, but since God has breathed life into you, he calls you a living sacrifice. Now, you've heard it said the problem with living sacrifices is that they tend to crawl off the altar, right? That is our problem. We, we tend to still become self-willed. We still, still tend to follow what we're going to call our reality rather than align our reality with God's truth. And so, yeah, we do tend to crawl off the altar. We do tend to say, you know what, God, uh, thanks very much for your help in the past, but I'm going to take this one on my own, and I'm going to do it my way. And God says, I'm sorry, but here's the truth about you, Mike, and this is how you need to live. And at one point, you offered yourself to me as a sacrifice, but note here, that this word is in the present tense. Now, in the Greek, there's a lot of significance to tenses, more so than even in English. But in the Greek, the present tense is present continuous action, which would then be translated, offer your bodies and continuously offer your bodies. It's not just something that you did or that you're going to do today. But it is every day, every moment of every day. That's why when that phrase, deny self, take up your cross and follow me, they're all in the present tense. And it basically means deny self daily, take up your cross daily, and follow me daily. And there is an emphasis on this action that's continued. So you didn't just offer yourself to God that day that you were converted, this is something that your life has become an offering, a daily offering, a living sacrifice. Mike Curtis has died, and the new me has been consecrated to God, and I offer myself now to him. You see, in this way, in you, me, offering ourselves to God That means I am no longer my owner. I have entrusted the ownership of me to another. It is not to sin, because that would make sin my owner, my master, and I would be its slave. I have now offered myself to God. He now owns me, and I am his slave. And every day, especially in the face of temptation, I remind myself, Mike, you no longer own yourself. Sin no longer owns you. God does. Offer yourself right now. Offer yourself to him. God, I belong to you. I am your slave. They say that the greatest freedom is, excuse me, I'm trying to remember the word, voluntary slavery. The greatest freedom 
is voluntary slavery. Actually, when a slave, and by the way, slaves in the Old Testament were very different than the slavery that America experienced and that England experienced. <clears throat> very different. And if you went into debt or didn't have enough money, you could offer yourself as a slave to your creditor, hoping he would be a good master, and you would be able to pay off your debt this way. But he had rights over you much as one would have over property. At the end of every six, or excuse me, seven years, regardless of where your credit balance was at, you were no longer his slave and your debt was canceled. <clears throat> if you really enjoyed having this man as your master, you could actually enter into a contract in which you would, for the rest of your life, be his servant or his slave. And there were many excellent masters. We called this type of slave a pierced-ear slave. The servant would go to a door of the master's house, and with an awl and hammer, the master would press his ear up against the door with the awl in hand and bang the awl and pierce his ear a little bit different, ladies, than when you went and got your ears pierced, just a bit different. And that hole in your ear would remain there for the rest of your life because you were a pierced ear slave. You were now owned permanently by this master. You had now surrendered your rights to him, and you enjoyed living in his land, gaining all the benefits that a slave would. It's just that in our minds, we have this very negative view of slavery. I understand that. It's just that's not the way it was in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. <clears throat> we are now slaves, a doulos, if you will, a slave of Christ. He owns us. When we are owned, we do exactly as our master says. We wouldn't think of doing otherwise. Now, I'm going to give you another illustration here to help us with this concept that the slave truly desires to obey his master. And I'm going to use the illustration of an employee, which is not quite being a slave, but it's just that there's no other type of illustration in our day that's commendable, so I'm going to use that. This is a benevolent boss. One day, happens to be your birthday, you go into work and the boss says, Sam, what are you doing at work today? Isn't it your birthday? And Sam says, well, yes, it is. And he says, you don't belong in the office. You need to go home and be your family. Go to the beach. Here, take 50 bucks and do something fun with your family. How many of you would like to have a boss like that? Yeah. You not only get your birthday off, you get three days, plus, of course, the weekend for Thanksgiving, and four days off, plus a weekend for Christmas. Ah, the boss says, you know what, just take the whole week off. And when it comes to New Year's Day, take a couple of days off, too. All of them paid, of course. And don't wait, because come January 1st, or at least your next day that you appear in work, I'm going to be handing you a check, and it's a bonus. 
And it's generally about $10,000 to $15,000 a year. And this boss is absolutely generous to you. If you're sick, he says, no problem, I'll cover for you. All right, how many of you would love to have a boss like this? All right? When you do something wrong, for most bosses, they make a public, public spectacle of you. In a meeting, they call you out, they tell everyone what you did that was wrong, and they say, take Sam as an example and never do that again, okay? And, and then Sam feels humiliated. I mean, that's probably happened to some, I'm sure never to you, Sam, but some of us, that's, that's happened. We've been called out, and it's like, I feel really humiliated right now, and I really am not motivated to do this job at the moment. Now, and, you, and you need some downtime to recuperate. And he, he, he scolded you. This new boss, he pulls you aside, and he says, come here, Sam. I realize that what you did the other day when you made this decision kind of backfired on you. Let me explain to you why it backfired, because my goal for you right now is in the next time you encounter it, I want you to have a tool, a little bit of knowledge, my own personal experience, because I did that, blew it one time. Here's what I learned. And he gives you this little nugget of, of experience. He doesn't embarrass you. He doesn't call you out. He truly wants to help you become a better employee. You really love this boss. But one day, he says, Sam, I need you to take out the trash. How many of you would say, you know what, boss? Taking out the trash, I don't see that in my job description. You know, that's, that's, that's beyond my pay grade. That is, that is not what I'm here to do. Can you kind of just like, I don't know, have the janitor to do it? Or if we have a cleaning crew, let's just wait. And we'll, but Mike, it's overflowing. Or Sam, it's overflowing. Can you, can you do this for me? How many of you would complain and say, I'm not going to do this and have a stubborn attitude? Any hands? Now, here's the reason why I keep the hands. <laughs> you wouldn't do this, because you're ruining my analogy. You wouldn't do this <laughs> because you have a benevolent boss who really cares about you and gives you so much latitude and freedom and for every little thing. I heard your daughter was sick. Here's another $100 to help her out. You love this guy. Take the trash out. No problem, boss. What else can I do? That's your attitude. You want to serve him. You're going to be the best employee this guy's ever had. But you see, that's every employee's experience with this boss. I think you're starting to get the idea. You see, we want to eagerly comply. Every day, when you go to work, you're in essence saying, you're the boss, use me today however is best to you and the company. Now, I want you to think about this. God is almighty. He created angels to serve him. God could have done that. Whatever the angels are doing right now, we only know a little bit. God could do that, but he doesn't, and he gives that privilege to the angels. God created you and I, and we do his bidding here on earth. God could do that. He could send an angel, or he himself could go and preach the gospel to the nations, but he's given you the opportunity to do that. He could suddenly show up at the door somehow, some way, of your next-door neighbor to help them out with this tree that fell in his front yard, but he is asking you 
to take out the trash, so to speak. Can you help your neighbor, and can, can you serve him in this way? And you are going to say yes, because you have a benevolent boss. And Bible even says we are his co-laborers. Can you believe that? First Thessalonians 3, Timothy is called a co-laborer with God. Almighty God, who could do anything that he desires, has entrusted you to be his servant. Can you take the trash out? Absolutely, God. No problem on this one. Can you say no to sin? Yes, God, because I am your bond slave. Anytime. We are his slaves. We are slaves to the most benevolent master ever. We now offer ourselves to do his will continuously. That living sacrifice that refuses, by the way, to crawl off the altar, daily aligning his life with God's truth. And so, Scripture makes it very clear. God owns you. He loves you. He enjoys your fellowship. He longs for you to be able to fulfill his will as his co-laborer in this world. Understanding, knowing that your old man is crucified. And aligning your life now with the truth of who you are in Christ. And daily offering yourselves, God, what do you have for me today? Anything. Just tell me. Anything. I am yours. That is surrender. That is what it means to be under grace. Not the law. Grace. And God pours his grace into you. Titus 2, it says, grace teaches us to say no. Grace empowers me in this life to align my reality with God's truth of who I am in Christ. Church, do the math. Do the math. It's right there. You died. Today, your life is hidden with Christ and God. Every moment of every day, live the surrendered life. Offer yourselves to him. Choose today whom you will serve. And as Joshua said, it's for me and my house. We're serving the Lord. Surrender. There is no greater freedom. No greater freedom than voluntary slavery. That is who we are. Slaves of Christ. Amen, church. Can you stand with me? Father, what a simple truth is laid out for us here in your word. And yet, Lord, we struggle with it every day. Father, I ask that we would truly see ourselves from your perspective. 
and that we would consequently live in that dimension and live in that perspective of who we are in Christ. But God, we wrestle so much with the lies of the enemy. He lies to us about you, God, that somehow you are not the benevolent master that you are, the benevolent boss. He lies to us saying, I just can't live that way. It's too hard for me. Serving God is beyond my abilities, and I just can't, no matter how much I pray, no matter how much I surrender, and we buy into these lies. Teach us the sweetness of surrender. Teach us the reality of that surrender. Give us good examples of what that surrendered life is and what it looks like. And lead us in that pathway. Fix my eyes on Jesus, the greatest servant ever, to live that poured out, sacrificed life, to stop crawling off the altar. God, honestly, some of us, we need to stop four-wheeling in the mud. That's the truth. But help us, God, as you have given us this new life to live fully for you. Please, God, surrendered to your desires, not mine. In Jesus' name, amen.